one of the best parts of my job is just hearing stories. I have the privilege of being able to talk to a lot of people during the week and just hear their stories. And that is amazing in and of itself. Just the, uh, the constant oh, diversity, uniqueness of each story, what every person is going through, how they perceive what they're going through. It is a privilege to be able to hear all these stories and to connect, to hear the questions, to hear the concerns, to hear the traumas to hear the joys, everything that is going on in their lives. And sometimes, as I am going through the week and kind of evaluating all the stories that I've heard, some of them start to connect and actually make sense in a, in sort of, in a larger way. And that's what happened to me this week. Stories connecting and showing me things and teaching me things. And I want to try to relay that to you and see if it makes any larger sense to you, if I can... Uh, convey faithfully here. This week, I was um, speaking to a man, and he was talking about being on a, one of these spiritual uh, social media groups. You know, everybody gets to share, and they put things in. And there's one man there who is sharing, and he said he self-describes as a mystic, as a contemplative, as a, someone who, who really connects with God directly. And, um, and he talked about that experience of his as being a mystic, as being completely alone. And he made comments like, you will never arrive, whatever arriving means, you'll never arrive without being alone. That we won't know who we are until we shut down other people. And just the way that he was talking, the way that he was writing in this group, I should say, um, the words that my friend used was pedagogue, and if you're not familiar with that word, it's like a really stodgy teacher who always seems to be a bit condescending, talking down to you, very narrowly focused, and he said that he came off as being spiritually arrogant as well. He was turned off by him. Now, he conceded that this man may have really done some work here and was able to see more and to be able to, you know, conceive of more in his spiritual growth. But the question that he had for me was, I love this question, how do you resist the temptation of becoming spiritually arrogant as you grow? I thought that was an excellent question. As we grow in our spirituality, as we evolve, as we do begin to see more, maybe than some of the folks around us, as to be able to see ourselves and how we fit into situations. There's a temptation to begin to see ourselves as head and shoulders above the crowd, as having achieved something that somebody else hasn't. How do you resist the temptation to let that turn into a spiritual arrogance? How do you resist the temptation to, to become pedantic, you know, that, that stodginess, that, that uh, condescension as you talk to other people? How do we resist that? I was talking to him, and I said, you know, first of all, I think we need to make a distinction between aloneness and isolation and solitude. Solitude is always the word that the ancients have used to describe this connection with God, this wordless connection with God. In fact, they define solitude not as being alone, but being alone with God. You're never really alone when you are moving into this place of stillness and solitude and silence. In fact, you are more heightenedly aware of the connection that you have with everyone and everything. 
It's not about shutting people down. It's about bringing them in in a different way. It's about getting quiet enough inside, still enough inside, that you can see those tendrils. You can see how it is that we connect with each other. And it's a completely different experience. Mysticism, contemplation as we like to call it, is about finding the connection in everything, not in gaining knowledge. It's not about gaining more knowledge. In fact, there's a time at which you got to just put down the books. Please step away from the books. Step away from the lectures and all the podcasts on the internet. There's a point at which we have all the knowledge that we need. What we need to do is start putting it into practice. Contemplation is about that practice. It's about putting what we have already learned into practice. This man apparently was kind of a modern-day Gnostic, and I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but Gnosticism was an early, what was declared a heresy in the church, but it was all about, it was a a mystery religion. It was all about gaining secret knowledge, initiated into secret knowledge, so that then you had something that the great unwashed out there did not have. You were initiated into the mysteries. You had and it's just a hotbed. It's a, it's a seeding ground for spiritual arrogance. It's not about knowledge, right? Because knowledge leads to sense, a sense of superiority. It's about connection, which leads to a sense of humility. We are all connected. We are all the same. We are no greater. We are no lesser than anyone else. We are all equal, especially when it comes to grace, which is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. In grace, we are all exactly equal. There is no degree in grace. Anything that doesn't have degree can't be measured. We can't measure God's love. And we certainly can't measure God's love between each one of us. The ones that look maybe more beloved by God to our eyes from the outside looking in are simply the ones that respond to the equal love in a different way. In fact, contemplation and connection are the antidote to arrogance. You want to know how you can resist the temptation for spiritual arrogance? Is you stop focus on the no- focusing on the knowledge and you move into the experience of connection that each of us has with each other. Then I had another uh, conversation. In this conversation, in this conversation, I was uh, referred to an article. And this article is a few years old, and, but it was just striking in the way that this, uh, this woman, she's a, she's a minister in Dubuque, Iowa. Wow, Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> Reminds me of Jesus coming from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Dubuque, Iowa. Let's see. Now, sarcasm alert. This woman has a pretty sharp pen, so you're going to love this, Frank. But um, the title is called Spiritual But Not Religious. Please Stop Boring Me. All right, so here we go. All right, you already got a little taste of where this is going. And she writes, on airplanes, I dread the conversation with a person who finds out I'm a minister and wants to use the flight time to explain to me that he is spiritual but not religious. Such a person will always share this as if it is some kind of daring insight, unique to him, bold in its rebellion against the religious status quo. Next thing you know, he's telling me that he finds God in the sunsets. These people always find God in the sunsets and in walks on the beach. Sometimes I think these people never leave the beach or the mountains. What with all the communing with God they do on hilltops, hiking trails, and did I mean, mention the beach at the sunset yet? <laughs> like people who go to church don't see God in the sunset. 
like we are all these monastic little hermits who never leave the church building. How lucky we are to have these geniuses inform us that God is in nature. As if we don't hear that in the Psalms, the creation stories, and throughout our deep tradition. Being privately spiritual but not religious just doesn't interest me. There is nothing challenging about having deep thoughts all by oneself. What is interesting is doing this work in community, where other people might call you on your stuff, or heaven forbid, disagree with you. Where life with God gets rich and provocative is when you dig deeply into a tradition that you did not invent all for yourself. Thank you for sharing, spiritual but not religious sunset person. You are now comfortably in the norm of self-centered American culture, right smack in the bland majority of people who find ancient religions dull, but find themselves uniquely fascinating. Can I switch seats now (laughs) and sit next to someone who has been shaped by a mighty cloud of witnesses instead? Can I spend my time talking to someone brave enough to encounter God in a real human community? Because when this flight gets choppy, that's who I want by my side, holding my hand, saying a prayer, and simply putting up with me, just like we try to do in church. Properly sarcastic? You know, in my experience, those who make a big deal about being non-religious have not been the ones who were replacing it with anything spiritual. It was kind of a get-out-of-church-free card, you know? And admittedly, because church was deeply flawed and had done things wrong, both historically and personally to them, they have rejected it. Totally understandable but they never replaced it and never replaced what religion has been providing to human beings for thousands of years. There's a reason we have religion. It hasn't been done well, but there's a reason, and that reason hasn't gone away. Religion isn't nothing. It's just been done badly. Then I realized that these two stories that I just told you were connected, as most things are that these two stories represented two inevitable reactions to an environment without grace, an environment without God's love. Have you noticed what happens to a kid who is raised in a judgmental home, an authoritarian home, a home where you just can't please the parents? Maybe that was you. Maybe that was someone you know. In the counseling that I've been doing, when I start talking to a person and they tell me what they're going through and they tell me about their attitudes and the way that they experience moments in their lives, I'll sometimes ask them, okay, tell me about the home that you grew up in. Tell me about the the dynamics in your family. And sometimes I'll say, did you have parents that were basically impossible to please? And they'll kind of stop and say, how did you know? (laughs) You know, how did you know? It just seems like so amazing to them. It's because there are basically two ways of dealing with a situation like that, a graceless situation where everything is earned by merit and that whatever you do just never seems to be enough. You never seem to be able to please the ones that you're trying to please, those ones in authority. You can become the overachiever or you can become the dropout. Those are two ways that you can deal with this. When you're faced with an overwhelming load, when you're faced with 
a, a mountain that you just can't climb, you can double down and just keep trying harder and harder and see what you can do to prove yourself, or you can just give up. Now, we talked about categorical thinking versus continuum thinking last week, and this is not categorical. There is a continuum between the full dropout and the full obsessive-compulsive overachiever. And yes, we end up someplace on that continuum. I mean, it's not hard and fast. But I think if you think about yourself and you think about your siblings and you think about people you know, you will see those two reactions in play. I've known three guys in my life that were raised by fighter pilots. Now think about a fighter pilot for a second. Think about what it takes to be a fighter pilot. You know, the kind of resolve, the kind of, of, of bravery, the, the, the kind of discipline that it takes, and what it takes to be a fire, fighter pilot and maintain that. Now think about that person as your father. Putting those standards on you and everyone. These guys that were raised in that type of environment, it was difficult for them. And two of them were the overachievers. One was one of the best musicians I've ever encountered, amazing musician, but always feeling like it was never good enough, you know? Another one was great in business and did all these things, and the other one was one of the dropouts, one of the ones who just kind of gave up, went into a more bohemian lifestyle. But we see this playing out. When there is no grace, when there is only a merit system leading to any acceptance, it's predictable what is going to happen. Religion without grace creates the same reaction. When our religion, when our churches don't have the grace in them, are still on a merit system, you can do one of two things. You can work harder and harder to achieve both the, the community's approval and God's approval implied. Or you can just drop religion altogether. But the irony here is that both reactions do the same thing to the person. Both reactions, achiever, dropout, take the person out of community. Take them out of connection. One, because they think that they have risen above the community and are looking down on it, and the other between because they think they've fallen through the floorboards and are no longer worthy of the community. But both reactions take us out of community because there is no grace. And the irony upon that is that the way to grace is really through religion. But religion properly understood in its broadest understanding, not the way that we have typically understood it. The word religion comes from a Latin word, religio. And there's some question as to the actual etymology of this word, but there are two main ones. One is re, which, all, which always means again, to do something again. And then lego, which means to choose, and ligere, which means to bind or to connect. And scholars through the ages have used both of them to try to understand what religion meant at the very beginning, what religion was supposed to mean. If it's to choose again or if it's to bind again or connect again, do you see where this is going? Augustine and Richard Rohr and many others have said, oh, it's all about binding again. It's about connecting again. It's all about bringing all the disparate parts that have gotten separated in our lives, both internally and externally, back into connection again, that that's what religion is about. 
And if that's true, then what religion is really about, despite all the doctrines and all the theologies and everything else that we have associated with religion, it's really about creating a space and a place for us to learn how to love, for us to find grace. That's what it's really all about. It's a playing field for us to be able to learn how to love the enemy, the one who doesn't deserve our favor. And yet the moment that we give it, we understand how it has been given to us. The circuit is complete. And grace starts to be internalized in a way that really begins to change our lives. That's the function of religion. And the Christians... They understood this at the beginning, but they lost it early on. And the way that religion and Christianity has been practiced over the millennia has actually killed grace. What Jesus was fighting about against the Pharisees in his own religion, in Judaism, was trying to restore grace. Judaism had gotten so off track under the rabbinical rule, had become so legalistic, everything was about the law, following the law perfectly as if God's acceptance depended on that following. And Jesus was trying to restore grace. He was trying to show the people, it's not this, it's something completely different. And his first followers, they got it for a while. There's an ancient Christian saying that we have up on one of the the slides here. One Christian is no Christian. Think about that for a second. One Christian is no Christian. There was that early belief at the beginning that Christianity, that following Jesus, could only be practiced in community, right? In relationship between others. If the foundation of Christianity, the foundation of Jesus' teaching was love, well, it has to be done in community. Following Jesus is following this way of love, and love requires a beloved. Love requires an object. Love requires a circuit to be closed. It must be in motion all the time, completing that circuit, just as spirit is always in motion. Love is only real when it's flowing between others, creating the identification, the connection between the two. If there's no relationship, there's no love. Frank brought up the Trinity when he was talking two weeks ago about grace. And that idea of the threeness of the Trinity, what the ancient called the the perichoresis, which is a big, long Greek word that basically means circle dance. It was the kind of dances that the Greeks used to do, even back 2,000 years ago, where they were spinning, and it goes into a motion blur, where it just looks like a circle. You don't even see the individual dancers. They were whirling, whirling so quickly. And that was the idea, that was the image that they used for understanding the Trinity. Not trying to understand it logically, but just saying there is this constant motion, this constant throughput, this flowing of spirit and grace and love that is within the Godhead. Almost like the the particles revolving around the, the nucleus inside an atom. That even the Godhead itself was a full expression of this grace, of this love, because of that motion always moving through. Now, religion and church done well equals community, this place to learn to love, which is interesting because the ancient Eastern people understood marriage in the same way. Marriage wasn't a place that you brought this 
romantic love into. It was a place you went to learn how to love. If we can get a balance between those two in our marriages, I'm sure they would last a heck of a lot longer and be more stable than they are right now. If we realized on the wedding day, it's not just a push that's going to get you through 40 years of marriage, but the peddling of this thing is the learning how to love. In other words, religion and church becomes a place to experience grace, the opportunity to love the enemy, as we were just talking about. And it's the only way that we can internalize grace. But of course, religion has not behaved well. But no institution does. Every human institution cannot behave well. And the bigger it is, the worser it is. And just take a look around. If you really think about it, there is no such thing as a Christian company. No such thing as a Christian school. There's no such thing as a Christian church. There are only companies and schools and churches made of Christians. The institution itself can't display the qualities of a Christian. The institution is just an inanimate organism that feeds and grows and has to keep growing in order to survive. It can't be compassionate. It can't have grace. Only people can do that. We make that mistake sometimes. We think the religion itself or the church itself is supposed to hold these attributes, but it's just an institution. This one, even as small as it is, as much as we pride ourselves on holding to our founding principles, it's just an organism. We have to keep feeding it with donations. We have to keep doing all the things we do to keep the lights on and keep the roof on. All the things that we do to hold the community together. It's an institution. But the people within it sanctify the institution, not the other way around. We have to understand this if we're really going to get what religion is all about. As Christianity grew, it became more and more obsessed with its own growth and with the power and the control that it needed for that growth. And the bigger it got, the more corrupt it got. We can just look at history for that. And we know that the church used fear to control the people, to get them to comply so that they could continue to grow. And they did this by using a legal model for God as a means of control, as Judaism did before it. That continuum that we talked about between non-acceptance and acceptance. And the more that we obeyed, the more we followed the law, the more we moved on that continuum. But at what point did we really click over to be fully accepted by God? At what point did we click over to get grace? It never happens. It doesn't work that way. Fear is never going to lead us to love. Fear of punishment is never going to lead us to grace. As soon as we are on a legal model, we're on that continuum between non-acceptance and acceptance, and that is the grace killer, constantly gauging where we are on this continuum, whether we're acceptable or not. It's not possible because it's all about performance now. Paul was all over this. If you've read Paul at all, you know he's constantly harping on the law. He's constantly trying to get the people to make this quantum leap, to move off of the continuum that the law represents and fall fully into grace. If you read Romans, that's going to be the fullest expression of his treatise on how this works. 
but I think Galatians 3 is probably the most forceful one. Take a look at Galatians 3, starting at verse 1. (laughs) You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the words of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, 2,000 years ago, this was just as snarky and sarcastic as the first article that I read. He is pounding these people. And if that just kind of went right through in NASB language, let's read it again in the message and see how it maybe comes a little bit more to life. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but certainly it will be if you keep this up. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives, you could never do for yourselves? Does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving? or because you trust him to do them in you. Catch his drift. These are the strongest possible terms that he could be saying. We need to return from this legal model. And that's the crux of Jesus' fight with the Pharisees as well. Can we return from the legal model? Can we come back to grace from the law, from this continuum? Because without grace and under law, The Father is impossible to please. Just like those parents we were talking about. You cannot please him. You cannot know that you have pleased him. You just keep working. You just keep running on that hamster wheel on and on and on. And when a father is impossible to please, it creates overachievers and dropouts or someplace on that continuum. The stories in the New Testament and the Gospels are just pure genius. If you really take a look at them and you read them, the use of metaphor, the use of symbolism, multi-layered characters in situations and plot points that are so spot on and giving us layers of truths if we're willing to take a look. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is right on this point right here, one of the best where Jesus is put directly between an overachiever and a dropout. And look how he handles the situation. This is at Luke 7, starting at verse 36. 
Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. I want to stop right there. You need to stop. You need to try to imagine this scene as if it was a movie playing in your mind. Now, first of all, they all reclined at the table. It was generally a horseshoe-shaped table. Serving, serving went from the inside of the horseshoe, and then there were couches, cushions around the outside of the horseshoe. And then radiating outward like spokes on a wheel, all the diners would recline, lying on their left side, supported by their left arm. All the foods were finger foods and dipping foods, so you only ate with your right hand. So just imagine everyone just lying with the person's back in front of them going around this table, and their feet out at the edge of the cushions in the back. So that is what dining looked like in first century Judea. They didn't sit at tables. This place was packed. Jesus' fame had already preceded him. The Pharisees were trying to figure out if it was really one of them or if he was a threat to them. And so they were asking him questions, and they were asking him over to try to find out what was going on. And so Simon asks him over, but the whole area knows what's going on. And so they all show up, and they're crowding through this place. Here's this woman in another gospel who is called the worst sinner in the village. She is someone who would have been completely ostracized. She was the dropout. She is the one who had fallen beneath the floorboards of the community, no longer accepted by them, and so filled with shame herself that she probably only went out at night. Whatever she needed to buy supplies, she probably only did at night, and, and then heavily covered and just trying to avoid everyone. And what does she do on this particular day? She pushes through all of that. She pushes through that shame. And in the middle of the day, she comes down the street, choked with people. Imagine the looks that she's getting. Imagine the jeers that she's getting. Maybe the, the spittle. Maybe the occasional rock. Who knows? And she gets to the house of the Pharisee and actually pushes through the crowd into the outer court moves through that courtyard into the dining room and has to stand there finding Jesus. And when she does, stands behind him, his feet would have been right there on the cushion, kneels down, pours the perfume, sobbing uncontrollably. Can you see this in your head? What this woman did was an astounding act of courage and an astounding realization that her longing for some type of connection again and her hope in Jesus that he really was the real deal that could find a way to accept her gave her the courage to come out, to be vulnerable in front of her entire village and to see if grace existed even for her. Risks the rejection of the community and risks the rejection of Jesus himself. And this is the moment when the Pharisee who had invited him, as he saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. 
Now see, under the Pharisaical law, if someone who was amha'aret, someone who stood outside the law, touched you, you became ritually unclean. You had to go through the ritual of, re- of, of cleansing yourself, presenting yourself to the temple priests and getting a clean bill of health so that you could re-enter community again. Just by this woman touching him, Jesus was now outside of community in this Pharisee's mind. This is what's going through his head because he's thinking legally. He's thinking through the law. He's realizing he would never do this. He would cross to the other side of the street if he saw this woman coming down and make sure that even his robes didn't brush against her as a Pharisee. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. And I imagine this as Jesus is dipping something in the, in the dish. He doesn't even look up. He knows what's going on. He sees the, the dynamic. He understands. He gets the vibe and knows exactly what Simon and all the Pharisees are thinking without even looking up. Simon, I have something to say to you. You know, can you just see the scene, Right? Say it, teacher. A moneylender has two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. So he tells him a little parable here. Always Jesus, without answering questions directly, always taking us on a journey, always showing us something that we have to immerse in and connect with to start to understand. And to get the impact of this, 500 denarii would be a sum that most people in that culture couldn't repay in their entire lifetime. It was such a huge amount of money. Jesus really lays on the hyperbole here, really creates this huge shift You couldn't ever pay that back, and they are forgiven. Simon answers and says, the one whom he forgave more is the one that will love him more, and Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. To not allow your guests to wash their feet was a huge breach of Eastern hospitality. Do you know what an insult that is? It's like a slap across the face backhand to not have your guest able to wash their feet, to have someone there, to have the pitchers there. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with your hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which have been many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You get the point that he's making here. It's not about the forgiveness from the outside that makes the difference. People have dodged big bullets and never move into gratitude, never move into love. You've seen that over and over. It's happened to you to me. There's times that happens. But when you realize that an undeserved merit has fallen your way, when a connection, an acceptance has come to you that you didn't deserve, in fact, was so impossible to you 
because of where you thought you had fallen, the gratitude goes off the charts. Your ability to just let go of all that shame and everything that you're hanging on to just leaves you almost like a burst aquarium where everything is on the floor, fish flapping. In just an instant, it's just all over. That's what I see in her. That's what I imagine that she was feeling, just that gushing out of everything in the connection, just with those feet. That's all she could even hope to hang on to at that moment. But she knew it at that time. Everything was forgiven. Everything was okay. Simon, on the other hand, is the overachiever. He follows the law perfectly. He is a doctor of the law. He gets his power from the law. He helped create the law. His sect did. That's how he controls the people around him. Because he is so perfect at following the law that he helped engineer, he, at least in his own mind, deserves everything. Doesn't he? Every overachiever has earned their rewards. And therefore, they are entitled. In entitlement, there is no gratitude. In entitlement, there is no grace. It has all been earned, at least in your mind. In entitlement, there is no love. But since the dropout, the woman, earned nothing, then she is filled with shame. And in shame, as Brene Brown likes to define it, the fear of disconnection, there is no gratitude, there is no love, and there is no grace. Both positions at opposite ends of the continuum or anywhere on the continuum are exactly the same. There is no gratitude because there is no grace. And this is what we're being meant to understand. But this dropout, this woman, just like the prodigal son, think of the prodigal son, right? Breaks through the shame with her courage to be vulnerable at that moment, given to her by the catalyst of Jesus' persona, what she had heard about him and her own longing, is able to break through that fear of disconnection, has the courage to be vulnerable in front of the entire village, and lets herself be seen by them as she actually is. No varnish, no pretense, no projection, no defense. She is just there, flayed out, laid out, giving everything that she has to give. And she presents herself to find that grace and connection are actually real for her. And the very last line that Jesus says to her is, your sins are forgiven. Your faith, and understand, faith as action, not faith as understanding. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And peace, of course, is shalom, which means the greatest amount of health and wealth and connection and family and community that is possible in a human being's life. There is no gratitude on the continuum between the dropout and the overachiever, between the dropout who is the non-religious one, the one who has fallen through the floorboards and rejected even trying to be in community, shameful. And the other side of the continuum, the overachiever, the self-righteous one, entitled, but also not in community anymore.
The only way that we can experience grace is to jump completely off the continuum with that same courage of vulnerability that the woman showed us to find grace, to find gratitude. And how do we jump? How do we do that? How do we get off this continuum? How do we get out of a legal mindset once and for all? And maybe not once and for all, but at least for the moment. How do we get out of that legal mindset so that we can see another there there? The only way this happens is to show up vulnerably to community, to accountability, to structure and discipline and service. If we aren't showing up vulnerably to community as she did, if we aren't letting people be to see us as we are, to know us enough so that we'll be missed if we don't show up, that they'll be calling us when we don't show up. That's accountability. That's being connected in community. To be disciplined to the structure that that community gives us, to create a structure within ourselves that connects us to our God when nobody else is looking. What did Jesus say? Pray in your own closet where nobody else is looking. Create your own structure that is what you do and will do. Whether anyone ever sees it or gives you a pat on the back or not, it doesn't matter. It is your structure. It is what you are doing. Are you disciplined to that, whatever that is? And as you show up to community, as you are disciplined to structure, are you finding the myriad ways to serve the people that come into your path? Closing that circuit. Serving the enemy, the one that you don't understand, the ones you don't particularly like, the ones that don't deserve the help that you're giving, that don't deserve your grace. Because if we aren't willing to do that in community, within the group, that cloud of witnesses the minister was talking about, we will never know what it means to live a grace-filled life. We will never know what it means to jump off the continuum. Religion and church can provide this for us. Yes. But it will never be perfect. Whatever religion you join, whatever church you join, including this one, will never be perfect. The leadership won't be right. The doctrine won't be right. The theology won't be right. And we can focus on all those things or we can focus on each other amidst the imperfection and find perfect relationship with each other, which is what religion is ultimately all about. All those other things, the doctrine, the theology, the practice, the ritual, that's just tools. That's just boosters on the rocket. That's training wheels on the bike to get us into the reconnection, the rebinding, bringing all those disparate pieces together. That's what religion is all about. Your church, your religion as an institution will never be perfect. It is up to us to make it so with our gratitude and with our grace. That's how it works. We sanctify the religion. The religion does not sanctify us. The religion is our tool. The religion is our servant, if you want to look at it that way, to help us to get there. Our religion... Our reconnection doesn't even need to be a church. It doesn't have to be a church, but it must be a community. It can be our family. It can be our workplace and the group that we inter intersect there. It can be a team. It can be a club. It can be whatever we give ourselves to fully and show up vulnerably. But 
It must be a community. And whatever community we engage religiously, I suppose, with grace, with vulnerability, becomes our church. The problem with the sunset on the beach, there is no community structure and service in that. Those must be present in your life. Be honest with yourself. If they aren't there, if they're missing, something is missing in your life. Our community, our religion, will be the place that we learn how to love, the place where we can find our grace. How do you know when you've found your grace? How do you know if God's grace has become real to you, that you're now living a grace-filled life? You'll know when gratitude has become the predominant emotion in your life. When you're living in gratitude, you're living in grace. The two always come in pairs. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a grateful people. You can't be grateful and depressed at the same time. You can't be grateful and angry at the same time. You can't be grateful and jealous or envious, frustrated, any of those negative emotions at the same time. Grace is where we want to live with you. Grace is the kingdom that we want to engage with you. Help us more and more to just dive into our communities, every single one of them in our lives, family and work and church, social groups, whatever they are, to push through the shame that we may be having and have the courage to vulnerably just show ourselves as we are. And Father, we know that we'll get rejected. We know we'll get our heartbrokens at time. But if we keep showing up, we will find those who show us their grace just as we can show ours to them. And in that exchange, know that your spirit is alive and active and moving between us all. Help us to find that courage, Lord, to keep showing up so we can prove to ourselves and experience the reality of your grace and your love. And Father, thank you for modeling this all, doing this all long before you even created us. Thank you for always preceding us and being everywhere before we can get there ourselves. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.